You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. It's Greg and Doug Stokes with the Lanyap Podcast. We're joined with a special guest today, Wes Gray. Wes, I'm going to read your bio here off your website, and it's a fascinating one, and we can jump into the discussion. But So Wesley Gray, Ph.D., served as a captain in the United States Marine Corps, also earned an MBA and a Ph.D. in finance from the University of Chicago, where he studied under Nobel Prize winner Eugene Fama. Wes then took an academic job in his wife's hometown of Philly and worked as a finance professor at Drexel University. Dr. Gray's interest in bridging the research gap between academia and industry led him to found Alpha Architect, an asset management firm dedicated to the impact mission of empowering investors through education. He's a contributor to multiple industry publications and regularly speaks to professional investor groups across the country. Wes has published multiple academic papers and four books, including Embedded, Quantitative Value, DIY Financial Advisor, and Quantitative Momentum. And Wes now lives in Palmas del Mar, Puerto Rico, with his wife and three kids. Wes, thanks for joining. I think just as an initial question, you can just jump into it. But undergraduate at Wharton, PhD, and MBA from University of Chicago, and somewhere in between the Marine Corps. Just walk us through your story. Yeah. So basically, I was a Wharton undergrad, and then I used to be the data monkey for all the professors there at Wharton. And they're like, hey, you should, you know, be a professor and, and do your PhD. I think you'd really like it because you're really into this research stuff. I was like, sure. What does that involve? They're like, well, you basically get paid to go to school. I was like, awesome. Let's do it. And I said, where do I apply? They said, University of Chicago, because that's where all the, you know, half the Wharton faculty is uh, University of Chicago finance PhDs. So long story short, I went right from Wharton undergrad and I somehow got into the PhD program immediately out of undergrad, which is not how it usually works. And then what happened there, I was there for a couple of years. And as you may or may not be aware, like the, the way the University of Chicago finance program works is it's kind of like a war zone where <laughs> the first two years, it's just they let a lot of people in and they kick a lot of people out. At least that's how it used to be. So you're just I was studying 15, 16 hours a day doing finance, like eat, sleep, breathe it. And after a few years, I passed what they call your composite exams, which is after that stage, you're what they call all but dissertation. And I was at the time, I think, 24 years old. And I'd always wanted to join the service, especially the Marine Corps. And I was like, you know what? I'm 24. I'm going to get rich at some point in my life. And I can go do finance for the rest of my life. But I got to do this or I'm never going to do it. So I ended up taking a sabbatical from the PhD program left for four years, 04 to 08. And then I came back, re-entered in 08, and then finished off the PhD. And then it got, I'll just keep going. It got more exciting. Well, that was 2010. And then so initially my plan was, hey, I'll go be a professor because my wife is also a PhD as well. And so we got offered this great gig in Philadelphia, which is my wife's hometown where, you know, I had a great job. They're going to get her a job. It was all great. Simultaneous to that same time period, I got cold called by this billionaire out of New York City who said, hey, we just lived through 2008. We want to fire all these hedge fund managers and figure out how to you know, control our taxes, control our costs and be quantitative because that seems like a better way. Can you work for us? And so in 2010, I was 
taking on a professor role. And then simultaneous to that, I started doing, basically, I was the internal due diligence agent for this family office at, you know, kind of moonlighting there. And that's what ended up basically leading into Alpha Architect and me getting out of, you know, being a professor and corroding young minds at uh, Drexel. But yeah, there's some more to it. But that, that's basically the, the crazy story of how I got to where I am. Is there such a thing as an ex-Marine, Wes? There is, if you want to get beat down. Uh, <laughs> not by me, but like the Marine Corps, as you probably aware, you know, there's no ex-Marines. There's only former Marines. And you know, the Marine Corps is like very particular about tradition. So if people say that, it's just you're going to rub Marines the wrong way, typically. Part of your studies was, was under Eugene Fama, who you know, pioneered the Fama French four-factor model. And so maybe talk about your studies in that particular program and why you came out sure. sort of a more of a quant and less of a discretionary investor. So first off, Professor Fama, I don't even call him by his first name because I can't. He's still like Professor Fama to me. He's an awesome guy, right? I think he's great. I think the world of him. I think he's got the best work ethic of anybody you ever meet. The guy like grinds at like 5.30 a.m. every day, no matter what, even on holidays. So incredible. But now we'll talk about research and how I got to where I was and maybe where I deviated a little bit from Professor Fama from an intellectual standpoint. But I just want to highlight, I think he's like literally a legend in my mind from like a, like a personal perspective, even though we, we differ on some things. So back history is before I got in the PhD program, I used to be a, well, still am, a massive Warren Buffett, Ben Graham, old school, kick the tire, stock picker. And I actually did that for a long time, right? I started that right when I turned 18. I was huge into that. It was right after the bubble crash in 98, 99 is when I got started. And I was obsessed with stock picking, all these kind of things, right? And what happened is I entered that the PhD program there. At that time, when I first entered, I was like, ah, oh, you know, stock picking's awesome. That's where all the that's how you become Warren Buffett. Like this quant stuff's all a bunch of junk. You know, how could they possibly do better, equal a, you know, all this effort I do picking stocks. And so quickly I learned that that's not the case. And you guys are probably familiar with the research. Like there's these things called factors and you could just hold portfolios of stocks that have characteristics that you think are favorable and that could lead to similar outcomes as if you beat your head against the wall all day trying to pick the stocks. And the way that came to fruition for me in particular was actually in my dissertation or one part of my dissertation where what I did is, is there's this organization called Value Investors Club. It's like this internal like stock picking deal with all these hedge fund people. I'm actually part of it via my legacy life as a stock picker. And I said, you know what? Professor Fama says the market's efficient. And you don't need stock picking. I'm going to prove that old guy wrong. And so I literally read like 4,000 well thought out stock pitches. I had this huge database I created of like how and why they made their decisions. I quantified all of it, did all the performance analytics because I wanted to say, you know what, Fama? Like, see, there's real alpha out there for these stock pickers and your stupid models don't actually, you know, help. Uh, or they don't they don't solve the active stock picker problem. And so long story short, after doing all that research and presented to them, I actually did highlight 
like at least like a three factor or five factor model, kind of like the Fama French models that in general, you can explain 90, probably 95% of what these folks were doing with like a stupid, you know, quant model. But it was the case that at the margin, this group actually did have a little bit of alpha. So I think it was like a mainly a Fama win and maybe a small win for stock pickers. But interesting enough, that's because you're using Fama French models. But I always thought Fama French models were crazy because like, you know, just starting with book to market, like, you know, as an old Ben Graham person, like how is book to market say anything about how much money you can earn? Like I care about operating income and earnings and these sort of things. And so in my own analysis on that group, what I found is, yeah, they do really well. But when you actually map out what are they doing? Well, they buy smaller stocks that are cheap on enterprise multiple basis that are high quality. And I was like, that's all they're doing. That actually explains pretty much everything right. they're doing. So it was kind of like what Farm was saying, but you know, with, with a little bit of tweaks and twangs on like the type of value metric you use and what have you. But long story short. Why do they work with the factors? So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of arguments for why they work. It basically boils down to the efficient market hypothesis version of it and the behavioral finance version of it. And I'll walk you through both those, as you guys probably know these already, right? So how in the heck, the baseline question, let's just do a price to earnings ratio, because most people probably know what that is in your audience, right? So price to earnings, like what's the price you pay for the earnings you get? You know, all else equal, lower is better because, you know, I'm, you want to be cheap and not pay a lot for something. So how could it be the case that if I just simply bought the 10% cheapest stocks on PE over the past 100 years, I'd get to outperform the market in theory by like two or 3%. That makes no sense, right? Like how could that work? Because a caveman or a cave person, sorry, could, could do that analysis, right? And, and so that boils down to trying to understand, well, why do you get to earn higher returns in the first place? And it's not because it's a free lunch, right? That's just not how markets work. And if you have any experience in financial markets, you know that you can't just go buy Bitcoin and become a billionaire. Like that's not how, how things work. It's not that easy. There's gotta be pain associated with the gains. And so one theory for the pain is the market efficient hypothesis theory, I guess you call it, is that, well, the reason you get to earn higher returns with these cheap PE stocks is they have higher fundamental risk, right? There's some about these businesses, they're more likely to go bankrupt, they're, you know, they got more physical assets in place, so they're not as adaptable, blah, blah, blah. And that's one theory. There's some evidence to suggest that it's probably true for partial of this stuff here. Great. So, you know, the reason you get more returns for buying cheap PE stocks is not because you're a genius, but because you're fundamentally taking on more risk. So more risk generally equals higher return. The other part of this equation, which is what Fama and, and that crew tend to leave out. And of course, he won a Nobel Prize winner for this whole theory and the empirics related to it. But there's also a Nobel Prize winner in that same year that got a Nobel Prize for a very different theory. And that's basically the behavioral finance theory of how markets work. And this is this idea that, you know what, fundamentals might matter, but sentiment and the humans that play in this stock market game matter a lot more. And we think they drive prices. But it's not the case that there's just free $20 bills out there that are super easy to scoop up, right? Because if there's a $20 bill that's caused by mispricing because someone's been an idiot, well, some smart you know, person like Doug or Greg is going to go grab it. 
But in a real financial market, if I know that like really cheap value stocks, like let's say it's sentiment driven, right? Like people, the market just throws the baby out the bathwater. And the reason that these low PE stocks earn excess returns is because sentiment, it goes in these waves and it just pushes them beyond their fundamentals. Well, great. The arbitragers are the magical hedge fund managers will make those more efficient. But can they really do that? Because what happens is when you actually look at like low PE stock portfolios where you just buy the top decile, what you'll notice is they can go through five-year stretches of massive underperformance. Like it's really expensive to try to short them or long them or do these portfolios. I.e., it's not a free lunch to like just magically push mispricing a line. It's actually really costly and really painful which is why you don't see a lot of portfolios in the marketplace that just go buy the top 10% cheapest stocks. Because if you look at their relative performance over long periods versus the S&P 500, you're going to get fired every five years with almost a guarantee, right? We're literally the only firm in the world that does that because we're just stupid and don't care. But that's another story. So the idea, again, going back to this, is there's the efficient market hypothesis where low P stocks earn extra money because they're just fundamentally riskier. That probably contributes to, to some of the reason. But there's also this other hypothesis that sentiment drives mispricing and dislocations, but it can last for a long time because it's really costly to try to take advantage of these mispricings. And that's generally referred to as the behavioral finance hypothesis. And I'm just a firm believer that both of those concepts of why, say, cheap stocks work over the long haul versus the market you know, play a role in the excess returns associated with, you know, like a simple example here of just let's go buy the 10% cheapest PE stocks. And again, the equilibrium outcome is that no pain, no gain, you know, extreme pain, extreme gain, but there's not like a free lunch here, even though it's simple, it's not easy. Well, so there's been all this published research and Dr. Fama won a Nobel Prize for the research, basically showing that these factors could lead to long-term outperformance in the markets. So everyone's aware of this, basically, in the investment industry, that certain factors lead to outperformance. Because of the research and because of everybody's aware, do you think that necessarily means that the arbitrage opportunity or the ability to obtain alpha or excess performance has diminished in any way? Or do you think that because of the behavioral aspects that you just mentioned, that it's so difficult to be able to stick with these factors over a long period of time? Because it necessarily entails a lot of pain that there's still an opportunity for alpha or outperformance. Yeah. So what I would say, and this is counterintuitive, but for being around people for long enough, I think it's actually really intuitive. So a lot of people make this argument like, well, you know, everyone knows about it. Like, you know, I write books that literally like, process step-by-step, walk through what we do. And people always ask me like, Wes, we were doing that in our hedge fund. Why are you disclosing like your exact process in insane transparent detail where any knucklehead could go do it? And I say, because these are equilibrium excess returns tied to pain, right? There's fundamental risk. And if you do the portfolios that I suggest, you are gonna look like the biggest moron on the planet most of the time, and you'll never manage any money to your name. And that's just bad for business. So I have no problems with it. It's just in general. And going back to like, well, okay, so everyone knows about it, you know, frictional costs, let's just say they're zero. I always throw the question back. Okay. You've been around people, 
when the ability to act because there's zero cost to trading, there's infinite access to tons of information that you probably don't know how to process, but you're going to look at all of it and get overconfident, you know, so on and so forth. All that the current financial market has set up by lowering barriers to decision-making and barriers to action, all that's done, in my opinion, is increased the capacity for mispricing and sentiment-driven maniacs in the marketplace. And not only that, because career risk has gone up even higher because people are, again, they've got so much data, so much access, which makes their focus much more myopic. The incentives of the asset management industry is to make sure that even though they may know that, yeah, you could go buy top decile PE stocks and you know kick the tires off the index over the next 100 years. The problem is they also realize that that's a great way to get fired. So what are they going to do? They're going to closet index. Let's just go own the S&P with a little bit of noise, right? And so I feel like that incentive has only maximized itself as well. And i.e. the cost of trying to arbitrage sentiment-based mispricing has gone way up. And the capacity for more sentiment-based mispricing, because any idiot with a Robinhood account can now like pretend they're a genius and the information's at their hands. I actually feel like, ironically, even though this is the exact anti-hypothesis of like efficient market thinkers, because they're not, they don't think with behavior in mind, that I feel like the opportunity in factors, especially really weird ones that, that actually stick to the knitting of like what the actual academic papers originally stated, actually have more capacity for long-term performance. However, they also have more capacity for long-term pain, right? Because these big sentiment mispricing waves can extend for much longer than they used to be. Because as you guys are probably aware, like in the current marketplace, anyone who's not a closet indexer or who's not doing mega cap overpriced beta, i.e. S&P 500, you know, they've gotten destroyed on a relative basis. So what's happening right now is all of the active managers are basically getting liquidated. So the pool of available like arbitrage capital has been shrinking at a massive rate, whereas like the pool and then that capital is all being sold, which has impact on market prices. And all that capital is then going on like the what they call like the VWAP algorithm over at Vanguard, who I used to live by. And they literally take in $2 billion a day And if you don't think that has an impact on prices, you're insane, right? It's called supply and demand. There's not this weird sharp equilibrium everyone talks about because someone's got to buy and sell these stocks and there's got to be a liquidity provider on that side of the trade. So I think that we're just going to see because of flows, I feel like fund flows drive a lot more than fundamentals these days. I still think fundamentals always matter over the long haul because in the end you buy a stock because it's discount cash flow of the like what this thing will actually generate for you. But I feel like the waves of how sentiment can affect prices and the deviations between fundamentals and true value are just going to get extended, which means the pain of trying to be a value investor or a momentum or whatever factor you think works, I feel like it's going to get even worse. But that's bullish, right? Because if the pain is higher in expectation, the benefit is probably higher because there's less people that are dumb enough to sit there and like deal with the pain, right? You know, they got to be compensated. So I want to dive into that a little bit further because I think that's an interesting point that the amount of flows out of traditional active management and into passive management, whether it's Vanguard or iShares or whoever, we've seen a lot of volatility in markets, specifically, Mm -hmm. you know, large cap S&P 500 type names. 
Would you attribute a lot of that to just the liquidity in markets and that there's more passive owners now and that, that active managers are diminishing in size and in number? What's going on with the massive volatility that we've seen recently? Yeah. So, so we just had a whole conference where, where I was trying to solve this myself and understand it. And this is something that is literally on the tip of everyone's tongue. Serious academics are really like thinking about this. Because not that long ago, if you said that, oh, flows and, and this whole move in the passive, that's going to affect asset prices, you'd be laughed off the mountain, right? Because that doesn't happen. Well, you know, more and more people are realizing like, well, actually, we should take this serious because more and more evidence is starting to suggest uh, this could actually be affecting, you know, market prices. So long story short is I do not know because this is literally an active, you know, frontier area of research. And a lot of people want to poo-poo this idea to make themselves look smart because it aligns with like historical thought on this matter. And I'm also a big fan of like not like thinking this time is different. But if you look at any chart and you see or if you just hang around with any investor and you hear about how actively people want to buy S&P 500 versus like Joe Blow's, you know, active fund, even if it costs zero fee. Clearly, there is a mass exodus from anything that's actively managed to passively managed. And if you don't think that supply and demand matters, you're just crazy. So the truth's going to lie somewhere in the middle, where clearly this is having impacts on prices somewhere, somehow. The exact details, like, is it drain liquidity? Because now there's not like, you know, the passive people just buy, when the money comes in, they just buy everything. They don't pay attention to fundamentals. The only people that do that or obviously the active managers, but to the extent that their capital pool is way less than the passive pool, obviously the passive pool at the margin will drive most you know, pricing decisions. And you could see increased volatility because there's less liquidity because the limit book is a lot less deep because all the active managers are dead, right? Like how many hedge funds, how many Seth Klarman still exist? You know, 90% have got liquidated. They used to be that Warren Buffett, that kind of like long duration, we got 20 year horizon, we buy on fundamental capital, it's going out the door. So I honestly, I don't know, and I don't, I'm not here to say or scare people to think that it could like destroy the world. I'm not a, I'm not one of those types. There's people out there, but I do think it would be silly to not be cognizant of this potential problem and think about it and be aware of the research coming out because it could have implications on on maybe how you do allocations and how you think about investing is what is my stance on it. Well, where does Alpha Architects sit? Because I guess you could say in one sense that an ETF provider or rules-based investor is somewhat of a passive manager, but it's not passive in the sense that you're just buying the S&P 500 index or something similar. So yeah. what is the, in mm -hmm. terms of positioning for your particular asset management firm, how do you think that flows in general effect? I mean, you just mentioned that there's potentially more pain, more gain, but are you doing anything different than what you would historically do based upon that sort of potential thinking? No. So, I mean, our basic, like literally what our business is meant to do is I was never in the actual asset management business. I was always a PhD and I just wanted to make money. Right. So our products were designed with the idea that how is Wes going to compound his capital for the next 20 years? And West does not give a rat's, you know, behind about how it looks relative to the SP 500. So what did I do? 
Well, I went to the research and I look at all these papers, I replicate all these papers, and what do they basically do to identify these factors? They say, let's go buy the 10% cheapest or let's go buy the 10% best momentum, blah, blah, blah. Look at this, over 100 years, this is amazing. And then the dirty little secret about that, though, is when you look at those portfolios relative to benchmarks, you know, you're going to want to jump off a cliff because they go through these huge five-year windows. They're what they call tracking error. They got massive career risk. And so that's how we always done it, right? Whereas if you look at every other asset manager out there, they'll quote the research and you look at the portfolio and it's got like a thousand stocks and it kind of tilts a little bit away from Tesla. Okay, how is that a value portfolio? Let's just look at the PE on your portfolio. It's pretty close to the S&P 500, but you label it value. How does that capture the value premium, right? It makes no sense to me. So that's what we do. We do like, I used to call it like the blue meth of factor investing. Like if you want the pure stuff that is like, if you take too much of it, you might die. But if you know what you're getting, it's the good stuff, right? But it requires literally 20 year horizon and you need to be in your seat and believe in the process and in for the long game because we maximize career risk, right? And so it is what it is, right? That's why we're not BlackRock because we do stuff that most allocators or intermediaries, if they use our stuff at any sort of scale, it's going to get them fired, right? So why would you want to touch the fire? And that's fine. We're a boutique and we're cool with that. So that's what we do. And we've always been focused on just embracing career risk, like anti-selling, saying, hey, clients, like stand by for massive pain. This is like the Marine Corps on steroids. If you can't deal with it, get out of the kitchen. And so the culture of what we do, how we communicate, how we talk, it's designed to like, if this just gets worse, you know, in theory and expectation, it's we're bullish, right? Because in the short run, it sucks. Because you may feel like you got you know relative, you look like an idiot. But in my mind, that just means higher expected returns over the next 20 years. That's how I think about it. But again, we are not normal or standard in our business, right? It's that's just our perspective. So we haven't changed anything because we're already in the maximum careerist trade. It's just either going to deliver us higher expect returns, or if we all want to get rational and start thinking long-term, we're going to probably earn lower expected returns because there's less crazy people out yeah. there. So, you know, it's just, we're already set up. I think this is a good segue for uh, a discussion on how you actually implement the strategy that you're using. Because if you look at like any of these papers, if you look at Fama's papers on, let's say, book to market, and you see these return premiums that you get for lower valuation stocks versus higher valuation stocks, None of that takes into account transaction costs or taxes, and they don't look at it on an after-tax basis. And so maybe just walk through, typically how this would work is, let's call it on a monthly basis, you buy a 50 cent stock, I mean, a dollar stock for 50 cents and then sell it when it gets to a dollar. But the problem with that is you're turning the portfolio over and over and over again and paying taxes every time you do so, assuming that it's, it's gaining. So what is the way that you guys do it that makes it tax efficient? Yeah. So to even step back for that, to your point, and one of the problems with the financial service industry is the best idea, the best strategy in the world can always be ruined by fees and taxes, right? And so you can have a lot of excess return, but if you give it all up in fees and taxes, what was the point? I might as well go buy the Vanguard fund. And I would say in most corners of our world, the answer is just low fee, brain dead versus fancy 
because that net benefit is hard to capture. And so when we decided to say, hey, we're going to be the most active like factor people possible because we want to actually try to capture these premiums in their purest form as they were documented in the actual papers that talk about them. Well, great. We can do that. But now we've got to think about how do we manage the fees? How do we manage the taxes and all the frictional costs? Because we're no better than every other person out there doing this if we just deliver a net negative benefit over the next 20 years, right? And so the fee thing we're always working on, we try to get obviously like our advisor fees and transaction costs as low as humanly possible, but we're also in a limited scale product where you know we can't jam $100 billion into anything we do. We could put like two or $3 billion Otherwise, we've got to go be, look and feel like everybody else, right? Because we got too much money floating around. So we're just constrained. So our optimization is, hey, as a boutique, how do we get the fees as low as humanly possible while still maintaining a profitable, like robust enterprise, given that we know we don't have this huge convex option on, we can't like scale our funds to infinity, right? Where you can lower down the fixed costs. We kind of sit like under Vanguard. We do what Vanguard basically can't do because they're too damn big. And then we got to try to figure out how to make it a win-win for the clients. And then to the tax point, that revolves around the ETF structure, where the ETF structure, the best way to explain it to people, especially if they're in real estate, is it's like 1031 exchange for stocks, where we can essentially cleanse tax basis from securities. And if you're buying and selling securities in an ETF, we can basically structure in such a way that as long as you buy the ETF and never sell it, you're never going to get a capital gain distribution, which means you get a compound tax deferred. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think the, um, I want to talk about one thing that a fellow alum of yours wrote, and it was just a chart that he put out a couple of weeks ago, Cliff Asness of AQR, and it was related yeah. to the, the value spread compared to growth. And for those who haven't been yep. paying attention for the last decade or so, growth stocks up until beginning of 2022 have just completely destroyed value stocks. So all the guys, and we're in this camp too, that have been big promoters of a, let's call it an evidence-based framework, a Fama French framework or an Alpha Architect framework, have just been uh, just been destroyed. And so this year, there's some sort of retribution there that value is really outperforming growth, or at least is not doing as bad as growth is doing. But Asnes put out, this was uh, May 6th, 2022. I don't know if you saw this or not, but the, the sure. spread between growth and value was still after this major reversal in 2022 at its 95th percentile. How do you just think about the future for value investors compared to either benchmark or growth investors? Well, I mean, I'll just probably leave you with the Ben Graham quote, right? In the short run, you know, Mr. Market does what it's going to do, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. I need fundamentals, free cash flow, like that stuff should matter. Otherwise, we're just a crazy land. So, and you can measure, like, as you said, like what Cliff did there. We also have a little tool that does this in real time across every valuation metric across the world you could ever imagine. No matter how you cut it, the valuation of value stocks is the cheapest it's ever been relative to the valuation of the market or growth stocks more particularly. And so the problem is timing. So I would bet a large amount of capital that over the next 20, 30 year horizon, that the relative performance of value stocks versus growth is gonna be exceptional. The problem, 
and this is something from a behavioral standpoint that you know your listeners and everyone out there has to deal with is I have to survive the potential issue of like, okay, I go buy value stocks and then all of a sudden all the crazy maniac stocks beat me and crush my soul by 10% a year for the next 10 years again. And is there a risk that I give up? And the problem is if, if there is a risk that you give up on fundamentals and the weighing machine in the short run, that means you will not get to extract the benefits of the long run. And I always tell people, you really need to sit down and think about your own brain psychology. And if you can't deal with the heat in the kitchen, get out of the kitchen and just go buy the Vanguard fund. If you think you got it or you got advisors or people that can help coach you along the way, keep you in your seat for the ride. I mean, obviously, like value looks incredibly compelling right now from a, you know, at least from a long term perspective, which is a key thing to emphasize. Well, Wes, this was super helpful and thank you for joining us. And we didn't touch on your life down in Puerto Rico, but maybe we'll have you back on to talk about how people can move <laughs> down there and avoid some of the federal income tax that we get on the mainland. But anyway, appreciate it, Wes. Sure. And, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Wes. Yep, you got it. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.